Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. There's varying opinions on Mary and her importance. Catholic doctrine elevates Mary to a level she would not have agreed with. And then in response, many Protestants degrade her to merely a vessel used to birth Jesus. Was Mary special? Should we hold a higher level of respect for her? What is appropriate and true? The best way to determine how we should view Mary is her response to being told that she would give birth to Jesus. Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Gabriel's first words indicate that Mary is special. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You might have grown up hearing it translated as, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. This is the passage that Catholics derive the Hail Mary, Ave Maria prayer from. And why is the blessed among you part left out of the ESV, NIV, CSB, and others? It's because the translation is uh, is derived from older manuscripts than the Textus Receptus-based translations. But regardless of whether you've got the blessed art thou among women, It is clear that Mary has favor from God. And this troubles Mary because, understandably, she is unsure what it means. She was probably racking her brain trying to figure out what made her special. She most likely feels that she's not good enough to be found in favor with God. Gabriel further explains what plans God has for her. Mary responds that it is impossible for her to have a child since she is a virgin. Nothing is impossible with God. A child will be born through the power of God. We are not told how this works, but with any miracle, 
We do not need to know the mechanics of it. How did the jar of oil not run out for the widow in Second Kings 4? What exactly is manna, and how did it materialize? How do you keep breaking bread in half and still feed thousands? How can a virgin give birth? It is impossible. That is not how the human reproductive system works. It is a miracle. Miracles are outside all natural and physical laws. It does not have an answer that we can give it. Because Mary gave birth to Jesus while still a virgin, it shows that Jesus did not have an earthly father. He is not bound to the curse of Adam. He was born without sin. This is where some start to believe extra-biblical things about Mary. The Immaculate Conception does not, as many Protestants believe, refer to the birth of Christ. We make assumptions and infer that a conception described as perfect and free from flaws would be about Jesus, but it is not. The dogma of the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary and her conception. The Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus needed a pure vessel to be born from, and thus Mary was sinless. From the Ineffabilis Deus, a document published into Catholic canon law by Pope Pius IX on December 8, 1854, says this, We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. This belief doesn't hold up to scrutiny. For one, the Bible never describes Mary's conception, birth, or even death. Furthermore, she is described as blessed, not sinless or born without the guilt of Adam. Additionally, if you apply some logic to the dogma, it doesn't make sense. If you're making the claim that Mary needed to be without original sin so that Jesus could be born from a pure vessel, couldn't you apply the same claim to her as well? And thus her mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, etc. You'd have to go all the way back to Eve. Jesus was born sinless because he did not have an earthly father. He was born of the Spirit. Mary is not involved with the holiness of Jesus. Further evidence for the Immaculate Conception being false comes from Mary herself. As we will later read, Mary sings, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If you were without sin, why would you need a Savior? Clearly, Mary knows that she is a sinner and needs to be redeemed. Additionally, recall how she ends her conversation with Gabriel. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She is acknowledging that she is lesser than God, that she is his servant. In fact, the literal translation of the Greek is female slave. She is saying that, it is, that everything being done is being done with his power and by his will, not hers. Luke 1, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here we see more biblical evidence that Mary is indeed a blessed woman. After being told that both she and her relative Elizabeth are pregnant, Mary travels to stay with her. Traditionally, many have believed that Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. The King James Version even translates it as such. However, the Greek uh, word that is used, and that I can't pronounce correctly, but it's in the notes if you want to see it, um, it's defined as a blood relative, meaning that Elizabeth could have been a first cousin, a fourth cousin, it could be an aunt. Um, I'm not sure why the relationship isn't specified or defined, but the important thing to consider is that they are blood relatives. After Mary greets Elizabeth, she is then filled with the Spirit and calls Mary blessed. We now have two messengers telling Mary that she is blessed. Gabriel and Elizabeth are inspired by God to tell her these things, meaning that God considers Mary blessed. And if God regards her as blessed, we should as well. What's interesting to note is that John, while still unborn, rejoiced at being near to Jesus. Keep that in mind when people start to discuss when life begins. It also demonstrates that it is never too early to tell children about our Savior. Elizabeth ends with saying that Mary is blessed because she believed what God had spoken to her. This is a word of prophecy for Elizabeth. There's no email or cell phones, obviously. She didn't know what had happened to her. Mary had left Nazareth in haste. This implies there wasn't time to send letters back and forth. Remember, Mary is told by Gabriel that Elizabeth is six months pregnant, meaning that the two of them have not spoken to each other in at least half a year, most likely longer. It is revealed to Elizabeth that not only is Mary pregnant, but it's that the Savior of the world is who she is pregnant with, and that Mary has believed the promise that the Lord gave her. Mary had true faith and belief in God, no matter how improbable his promises seemed. Mary then has her, her own words that she's going to share, and it's a song we refer to as the Magnificat. We call it that uh, from the insipit of the Latin translation of this biblical text. An insipit is when you derive a title from the first words or words of a text. Um, if you were a music major, you run into it all the time. Or if you, spoke, if you speak Hebrew, you'd be familiar with it since the titles of the books in the Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, are named in that way. So, for example, Genesis is called in the beginning. Exodus is the names of, and so on. So, out of tradition, we call it the Magnificat, but we could very well call it My Soul Magnifies the Lord, or if you're just no fun, you call it Luke 1, 46 through 55. And we'll read that together here. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. 
from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is such a lovely song because it's an example of how we should respond to God and his faithful promises and ultimate power. I'm going to quote from the ESV Global Study Bible Commentary as it has a very good explanation of the layout and form of this song. Mary's hymn of praise follows the common form of psalms of thanksgiving. These begin by thanking God and then telling why one is thankful. So your copy of your Bible probably has a line break for each couplet, making it clear where each thought is. And we're going to go over it here. Mary starts by proclaiming that her soul magnifies the Lord. Extols or exalts is also a good synonym for that. She is praising God and rejoicing that God is her Savior, which sounds like the kind of thing that we sing here at worship on Sunday mornings. After praising God, Mary then explains that God has done great things for her, that is, having her carry, birth, and raise Jesus. She acknowledges that she is nothing on her own and but a servant for the Lord. She ascribes holiness to God. Verse 50 and onward, describe what God has done and what he will do. He will give mercy to those who fear him for all generations. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 7.9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. With his strength, he scatters the proud. This is a reference to Proverbs 3.34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Peter and John, I'm sorry, Peter and James in the New Testament take that same thing and modernize it in their own language by saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He has helped his servant Israel, as was promised to Abraham. Again, another reference to the Old Testament. This time, Micah 7.20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Throughout the Magnificat, Mary has proclaimed the goodness of God, his strength, his mercy, his faithfulness. She has rejoiced in the Savior and given thanks for the blessings she has been given. She has shown that God is consistent in his nature and is worthy to be praised. Since we have more time left, I'd like to go over some more Marian misconceptions and myths. We've already looked at one of the biggies, the Immaculate Conception, but now we're going to look into the Assumption of Mary. The Assumption is the belief that Mary's body was not left on earth, but was brought up into heaven. The Roman Catholic Church doctrine states that, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Notice they use the phrase, the course of her earthly life, 
and not death. That is because unlike the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholics are unsure whether Mary died and it was assumed or she was taken up before she died. Most Protestants do not believe in the assumption of Mary. As we discussed earlier, there is no information in the Bible about Mary's birth or death. Ephanasius, who died in 403, was one of the early defenders of church orthodoxy, and he wrote extensively on various heresies and disputed them. He said that he knew nothing definite about her assumption. However, by the 500s AD, there are some apocryphal texts that were written describing her death. I don't think a belief in the assumption of Mary is necessarily wrong. Enoch and Elijah were both taken up by God. So there is prior evidence that there are some people in heaven who no longer have a body here on earth. However, there's just not any evidence for it in the Bible. So if you want to err on caution, you can just believe that she died like everybody else. And you also may have heard of people referring to Mary as Queen of Heaven or Regina Chaley. This, again, is something out of tradition rather than the Bible. The argument goes that since Mary is the mother of God and Jesus is the king of heaven, and in ancient Israel, the mother of the king was known as the queen mother, so Mary must be the queen of heaven. It's not a very strong argument, in my opinion. In the Bible, she's referred to as blessed, but never as queen. And I think it's unwise to use this title to describe Mary, as it leads to elevating her to equal status with Jesus. Here's an example of that from the uh, 2017 article, Proclaiming the Queenship of Mary by the Catholic Diocese of Dallas. Pope Pius XII established the Feast of the Queenship of Mary in 1954 in his encyclical to the Queen of Heaven. He points out that Mary deserves the title because she is the Mother of God, because she is closely associated with the new Eve, with Jesus' redemptive work, because of her preeminent perfection, and because of her intercessory power. You see how referring to her as queen can lay you, lead you down a road of somewhat deifying Mary. Unlike the term Mother of God, or Theotokos, as the Orthodox Church uses, Queen of Heaven implies more power and authority to Mary than is depicted in the Bible. Mary as an intercessor. And the quote from Pope Pius XII that we just read, he said that Mary has intercessory power. In Catholic doctrine, one can pray to Mary and other saints to have them pray to God on your behalf. This doctrine is unbiblical and an entire sermon unto itself, so we won't delve into it. But if you're wanting a good explanation as to why Mary is not an intercessor, I would recommend reading, Does Mary Intercede for Christians? by Moises Pinedo on apologeticspress.org. And now the final topic of discussion is the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary. To me, this is strange for a number of reasons. It implies that virginity is somehow a marker of purity and holiness. It requires a skewed view of the biblical texts, and it requires reliance on condemned and rejected texts to back up the claim. Virginity does not make someone holy or pure. This is going to be Genesis 1, 27, 28, and 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God's intention and design for the world was for humanity to multiply and fill the earth. How do humans multiply? Don't answer out loud. But it's not by being a virgin. And this was before the fall. Notice that it was very good. Something less than pure or holy would not be described as very good. So I think ascribing holiness to virginity is not a biblical concept. Now we're going to jump back to the New Testament with Matthew 1, 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. After the visit from the angel, Joseph followed through with his betrothal and married Mary, but did not consummate the marriage. Those proclaiming perpetual virginity would say he never consummated the marriage, but that ignores the rest of verse 25. He knew her not until she had given birth, meaning he waited until Jesus was born, till after Jesus was born. And you can check the Greek, it is until written in there. That's not an English translation that is giving us this idea that there's something after the birth. Then we're going to go a little further in Matthew to chapter 13, verses 53 and 56. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? This same event is also recorded in Mark 6. So we have two recordings that explicitly state that Jesus had siblings, and it even gives people's names. Here the Bible uses the words, Adelphos and Adelphae for brothers and sisters. How would that be possible for someone with perpetual virginity? They claim that it was not siblings that was being mentioned by the townspeople, but actually cousins. If that were the case, why not use the word cousin? Um, Or the Greek word that I'm not going to say. I'm sorry, I can only say brother and sister in Greek. Again, you can check my notes if you want to see the word. Um, but you see that word in Colossians 4.10 where it says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So if they were cousins, the language existed for them to use it. Why not use that word instead of saying brothers and sisters? So to avoid that issue entirely, there's others that believe that Joseph was an old man with children who was widowed and then married Mary. They contend that those children are Joseph's and not Mary and Joseph's children's. To believe this requires the use of extra-biblical material, such as the Gospel of James. In this book, the claim is made that Mary made a lifelong vow of chastity before she was visited by Gabriel, and that Joseph was an old widower. This is the earliest account we see of the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
It is not inspired scripture. And in fact, two separate popes in the 400s AD rejected and condemned the book. And there are other instances in the Gospels that mention Jesus' brothers, but do not use the proper nouns, such as in John 7. And then again, how do you reconcile Luke 2-7? And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Firstborn meaning more than one. With so many instances of siblings interacting with Jesus or being mentioned in conjunction with him, and with the Gospel of James being discredited, how can you not come to the conclusion that Mary had more children? With a clear reading of the Gospels in New Testament, we see that Mary was a special woman whom God filled with grace and blessings. We are to call her blessed and acknowledge her as such. We are to see her as an example of how we should respond to God. Her Magnificat is a wonderful example of how we should worship the Lord. Her willingness to serve God and her acceptance to do this, do his will, should be emulated. We should not, however, ascribe power and authority to her, which should only belong to Jesus. She is not our intercessor. She is not our queen. She was the loving mother of Jesus who served the Lord willingly. And then we've got some time for questions or discussion, if you'd like. That you are what? Oh, mm-hmm. Do you have any questions? picked out this way of describing who Mary was, was her actions. And she wasn't seeking glory or fame or even asking people to hold her up. You know, she said, people will call me blessed in the future. But she's not, she wasn't saying um, that you need to, to worship me or, you know, have me work as your intercessor. But... Uh, but it's it's interesting how things sort of creep and build on each other just on different traditions. And then you look, okay, well, where'd you get that idea? And you look and look and look. And then it all comes from something that was just sort of pulled out of thin air a little bit, you know. Um, and that was a thing I found interesting in the, the research of it is a lot of these different Catholic things were referencing the Gospel of John. But then I later ended up finding 
different documents that said that these Catholic popes condemned the book. So it's sort of, you've got them both condemning the book and pulling from it at the same time. And it's the thing where I don't think these people pulling from it knew that their leaders said, hey, that's not actually something that should be part of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times in the different Catholic literature, you'll see it described as the uh, proto-evangelon because when they first came across the text, they thought, oh, well, this is earlier than the other Gospels. So that's why they call it the proto. But then people actually did some research on it and found that it came way after the standard Gospels. So the name is misleading, but the people when they first came across it, discovered it, thought, oh, this is earlier writings than what we have about Jesus and Mary being born. And so people started using it and looking into it. But then scholarship found that, no, it's, it's not older. It's younger than the Gospels that we use in the Bible. And I didn't look into so much the reasons of why those popes uh, condemned the books. Maybe part of their reasoning was, hey, look, it can't, came way after the Gospels were written. We're not going to use it. But regardless of that, uh, church leaders said these books were no good, but people continued to, to use them to advance the, the belief that they had that Mary was born uh, sinless and also a perpetual virgin. Interestingly enough, that, that sort of thought stuck with a lot of people. Uh, Zwingli and Martin Luther uh, still hung on to the belief of the perpetual virginity. Um, they don't do Queen of Heaven, yeah, yeah. They 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 believe in the assumption. Um, I can't say with certainty about whether they consider her an intercessor or not. I didn't look into that part of it, um, but the perpetual virginity the Orthodox Church believes as well. That that is one of the verses they use as as proof of oh well she's good to be used as an intercessor because um, she she requested him to do something and he did it um, I don't th- that is one of the verses that they use um, I don't necessarily agree with that that's uh, something we should hang our hat on of like all right well let's pray to someone who's dead and then they'll pass it on to God when there's a lot of examples in the Bible that say Jesus is our intercessor. And so, um, but you're absolutely correct that, that she did make requests of Jesus and he did do some of the things that she asked of him. Um, but I don't think that, uh, I, me personally, I'm not comfortable enough using that, that one bit to, uh, 
change where my prayers are being addressed. Yeah. 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 And the less is not better. It's the less is not scripture. We're taking away things that are legitimately there in scripture. So I think we have to be balanced and we have to be willing even to evaluate some of the things that we believe. I think Pentecostals, um, we, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that we've glommed on to biblical Christianity because of some topics that they've just said it. So we can't treat that like scripture. So I think it's important for us to evaluate and to do things like what's been done. Yeah, well, that's the, the way you know, traditions sort of work. You just keep doing them, and you don't know why it got there. You know, it's like the the old joke: the wife is making a roast. She cuts the end off and throws it away. Husband goes, "Why are you doing that?" Well, that's how you make a roast. Well, that's not how we did it at my house. Calls the mom. Hey, why do we cut the end off the roast? Well, I don't know. That's what my mom did. So she calls her mom. Hey, why do we cut the end of the roast off when we make it? And the you know the grandma goes, oh, because my pan was too short. You know, and it's this sort of thing where it's like that sometimes happens in different traditions. We have is we're just doing it because other people did, and you know traditions aren't bad. Uh, in fact, God tells us to do traditions, um, like with the the rocks by the Jordan. Right, you're going to make the make this here so that your your children will know what I've done for you, and then all the different feasts, you know, those are traditions, but you have to know the reasoning why. It's not necessarily that tradition is bad, but tradition for tradition's sake can be bad because if the tradition is built off of something that's not biblical, um, then there's not a good reasoning for doing it. And that's sort of what has happened through the centuries. Um, 
you know, like here with uh, um, Ephanasius, he said, well, I don't really know anything about the assumption, like, as a matter of fact. But then a hundred years later, people go, this is what happened, right? And it had been, things had built up and enough people went, well, well, this is just what it is, and not really getting to the root of it. And so it's not just an overnight, hey, this is what the disciples now have decided. It, you know, it happened after generations. And, um, you know, with here it was tradition, and it wasn't official. Some of these things weren't official church things until 1900s and 1950s, which is, you know, some, of, some people in this room were uh, around in the 1950s. And so it's a thing where traditionally they were calling her queen of heaven, but they didn't make it Catholic, doc, Catholic doctrine until the 50s. So it's a thing where tradition, they just went, well, we've done it for this long. We might as well make it official now and make it part of our doctrine. And that's, that's where traditions can kind of get you in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's why it's commanded that the Israelites were supposed to tell their children. Because when we read in there, when they don't tell their children, it, they slip away because they go, well, why are we doing these sacrifices? And then they just quit doing them because they don't know the reason behind it. And then they slip and do something else. And so I think that's just the key that, um, you know, some people think it's weird that we every week read the same thing over and over out of the same book. But it's... It's so that we're passing it on to the next generation so that they know. We don't want them just to believe because we do. We want them to believe because they've heard it and they've thought about it and they've seen that it's the truth. And so that's, that's my big, big, big takeaway is that, uh, you know, if we've got a question on something, you go right into the Bible and go, okay, well, what does the Bible say about this person or about this tradition or this thing that we do? You know, why is it that we believe that we shouldn't do X, Y, Z, right? And then let's go in the Bible and dig into it rather than just saying, oh, well, the preacher said. Because for a rebellious kid, that's not a good enough answer. Exactly.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're to try and be like her in her good aspects the same way we're supposed to be like King David, right? We don't say King David's perfect, let's be like him because of that. We say, let's do some of the things like King David, the good things that are pointed out about him, right? And same thing with Mary. She's got some good aspects and we should follow that, but we shouldn't serve her. Yeah. Than the law of God. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Her heart was the Lord, and she was saying, I'm, I'm a, yeah, she's saying, I'm, I'm a slave to God. And that's the thing where, like, that doesn't sound like someone who would want to be called queen, right? So um, that's why I think. The, the best way to get at sort of these people is you you look at the Bible because uh, some people really elevate Moses the same way Mary is. Well, look at the Bible. What did, what, did, what did Moses, what's it said about him? It says that he was humble, right? And so you shouldn't, uh, you know, sort of elevate him. But that, that happens in the, in the world today where people put Moses on this other plane of, and it's like, well, if it, if it wasn't one of the books of Moses, then it's not as good of Scripture. And that's not really the case. Thank you for uh, for listening in on this hot evening here. Um, if you've got kids, hold on just a little bit to let them finish downstairs. But thank you for being uh, good listeners and engaging there at the end. And um, you know, I'm I'm a real big fan of the Magnificat um, just because it's a really good text. But then also. 
you do a music degree, you'll, you'll sing a Magnificat a few times. Um, and there's some real good ones. If you, if you need one, I can get you a copy there you can listen to. But uh, this is neither here nor there with the sermon. But when you, traditionally when they sang the Magnificat, they would then add in uh, a doxology at the end. So instead of just ending it with, you kept your, your promise to Abraham and his fathers, then they said, you'll, you'll sing glory to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit you know, who was and is forevermore uh, here on earth and all that stuff, and then end it with a good amen. Um, so when you listen to the music and you go, what? There's, this wasn't in Luke. That's true, but what, you're, what they're singing is also uh, very valid and biblical because, um, you know, you should be giving glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. Well, thank you. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Okay. We'll close with prayer then. Dear Lord, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity this evening to gather together as believers and that we were able to take time together to pray and and uh, come to you with our requests and petitions. And we pray for the healings that we ask for this night, Lord, that you're able to Use it for your glory to heal all those people. And pray also for that you comfort uh, those that are in need that we have prayed for as well. We thank you that you've given us your word and your scripture for us to read and follow to, to see what, uh, how we should be living our lives and our proper responses to you. Lord, we pray that we, uh, like Mary, will have an attitude of praise towards you when we encounter things in life and that we have the willingness to serve your will and to do it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.